Welcome to the 29th episode of Cartoon Avatars. I'm your host, Logan Bartlett. Uh, what you're going to hear on this episode is a conversation that uh, Rashad, our producer here, and also known as the TikTok guy and I had with, uh, with Zach about um, a recent uh, all hands that Sundar Pichai from Google had in which he requested uh, more productivity out of workers. And Rashad made a joking video about it that went fairly viral. And so we talk about that. We talk about productivity in the workforce at these big companies, uh, Zach and Rashad's experience, both working at Google. Um, and then on the back half of the episode, you're going to hear a conversation Zach and I had for a little bit about, uh, about Amazon buying one medical. And then that dovetails into a conversation with Kyle from Multicoin and which we talk about different crypto use cases. We talk about uh, Multicoin's investment in Helium, how uh, Kyle got into crypto in general, a bunch of different stuff. So a really good conversation here. Thanks to Kyle for joining. Um, so we'll we'll go right into the conversation we have about Google here now. Rashad, you had a, uh, you had a viral video, what, last week, uh, making a joke about Google's culture. So why don't you give a little bit, we're, we're bringing the producer on for the, I guess the first time with Zach, normally Rashad's been kind of the stand in when Zach's gone, but, uh, Rashad, what, what happened and maybe give us a little bit of the, the what's happened since. Yeah, I should go through and read the comments. I feel like they were mostly supportive, but basically, uh, there was this article that came out last week about Sundar at his all hands. I remember we used to attend these when I would like Looker got acquired by Google. So I was at Google for two years and it was every Friday. Sundar, the CEO of Google, for those that don't know. Yeah. Um, and he would address the company. And I guess in the last one, he made a comment about the productivity is not where it's supposed to be. And we need to embody more of an entrepreneurial spirit. So I remembered Zach's thing uh, on LinkedIn that <laughs> was titled as just vacation for the time you were at Google. I forgot, Rashad, how long were you at Google? Officially two years, but the deal took like a year to close. So that we were in this weird like middle ground of like operating as usual, but not really. So, so how long was actually, is that, is that the third year or is that part of the two? Yeah. I left basically at the beginning of the third year. What would have been the third year? Got it. So you had two years actually formally under Google. And it was great. I mean, the, the culture, I mean, all, all of the perks that they talk about were proven to be very much true. When you left, did you, did you take the snacks with you? I still get invited occasionally to lunch. Rashad rolled in with a bunch of cliff bars in his pockets to the first day at Red Point. We're like, dude, we we can I remember I remember Lobster Day at one point. That's when I knew. Zach, when were you at Google? Uh 2010 to 2012 in the in the New York office. And I would take the white chocolate pretzels home with me. Because those were the best. Dude, their micro kitchen, their kitchens and their like uh, staff. And I mean, it was like half open because it was still COVID. So it was this weird time that I didn't even experience the full fledged version of it. But there was sushi, there were different cuisines on different floors. It was open pretty much all day. Wait, so Rashad, give the give the context though of what happened. So you made it, you made, so this happened. Sundar gave his all hands thing, increasing productivity. And so. Yeah, I basically did like a sketch, slightly exaggerated impersonation of what I imagined to be that call where he's basically like addressing the company at large, but in a very like Google, like we have to be sensitive to our staff and we don't want to piss anyone off away. Good afternoon, Googlers. I called the meeting today in response to our latest earnings. 
We done f***ed up. Going forward, we're asking that all employees, and please don't take this the wrong way, actually sign, like, be on, like, you have to come into work. Not saying every day or anything, just like, Sometimes, if you haven't logged in in 60 days or more, IT should be reaching out shortly to reset your passwords. If you're currently in Ibiza, Mykonos, Tulum, or San Tropez, we have charters back to our main offices for the remainder of the summer. Effective today, we'll be enforcing that all employees do log eight hours per week. So you did that. Yeah, it crushed on TikTok and LinkedIn, and uh, but now I'm getting a bunch of hate messages from my old coworkers for uh exposing them <laughs> they're like dude if i get laid off from google this is like five percent your fault we got to note that it was making the rounds at the vps at google that like it was being sent around as like uh i think people were laughing but uh i i don't know yeah we got a message from facebook and uh from someone at facebook at saying the same it was making the rounds with the vps but um I'm trying to anchor and use this as an excuse to get either sundar or mark on the pod um, but no, no success yet. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah. It's gonna, yeah. It's going to take an FBI search warrant to get one of them onto this podcast. So yeah, exactly. But Zach, you were saying about like actually changing the culture and how hard, I mean, like taking this to the actually, uh, insightful level while it was a very funny video. Like, I mean, this is a real thing. These are big companies with very, amazing products that they've built that sort of have monopolies or quasi monopolies. Um, I mean, this, these are real things like changing these cultures of, of companies and trying to get people when they get used to perks and stuff like that. I think famously or notably recently Zuckerberg gave his big speech about like, we have to dig in. Right. And like, this is our chance to really show that we can still grind. And then an employee, followed up with their next question about like, well, what about COVID holidays? Does that still exist? And, you know, it was reported by the media that like he was about to blow a gasket, right? Because he's he's like backs against the wall. It's wartime, blah, blah, blah. And then the employee's like, right, right. Those vacation days. So, I mean, this is very entrenched in these companies. Yeah, it's, it's in incredibly difficult to change because so much of like in my opinion, at least, and I worked at Google maybe 10 years ago, but so much of a company's culture is based on how they reward behavior in the promotion process. If you think about, you know, at a certain scale, you're not really there for the mission. I think people are there for the the pay and the perks. And then, you know, they want to get promoted and they want to make more money and they want to have like career progress. And so, so much of like how a company rewards behavior in terms of promotions drives the culture and the productivity. And if you really want to drive a complete change in, let's talk, we'll talk about Google's culture for a second, which tends to reward more like technical skill and creativity as opposed to effort, uh, you've got to push a massive change in the reward system, which means you have to like tie your manager's, manager's, manager's performance to output. And then you have to have them hold the next layer accountable and You've got to drive that through both the functional management and through HR, and you have to hold the entire team. It's a lot of work to drastically change how a company values, you know, certain skills versus effort versus output type of thing. It, it, I'm sure it can be done, but at Google scale with hundreds of thousands of employees, that is not an easy task. That's like a hundred person task force for two years. 
Yeah. Which they might use, by the way. That like might be a good idea. Like, yeah, maybe a productivity task force that changes, you know, rewards culture is actually a great idea. But you have to be willing to lose people. You have to be willing to fight the mob for that to actually get implemented. And to their credit, I think like I don't want to sound ungracious for the time I spent there was great. And uh, I think there were some really smart people. Uh, one thing I thought was going to be heavily bureaucratic that actually turned out to be pretty good and a, a smooth running process was their like perf cycles. So it's like highly structured, but they have it. So it's qualitative. I'm sorry, perf is performance reviews or something? Oh, sorry. It's like, yeah, performance reviews that happen, I think, semi-annually. And like, uh, there's a full-fledged application built that gets sent out to your managers, peer reviews. It's like, kind of take some time to do, but like, you know, it's, it's great. What does it do a good job of? I mean, it sounds like it's comprehensive, but like, what is that actually, uh, is comprehensive actually good in this case or, or what, like, did it make you feel good that you got a lot of good feedback? Like what, what did that actually solve for you? <laughs> you know, I feel about pats on the back, Logan, but, uh, it, it was, I think it did a good job of like assessing this person's impact. It was a lot of, it was very engineering and I was on the sales team. So it didn't, a lot of it didn't apply to me, but like, it was all about what is your impact to the greater team and what is one thing you could be doing to be doing greater impact and things like that. And just, I don't know. It just felt very, it felt very structured and it, it always felt like I got something coming out of those meetings uh, with my manager. It was like your joke in the in the bit, though, like what ice cream makes you feel most productive, which which non-dairy ice cream or whatever. Yeah, it sounds like it was good for that. No, but it's interesting. I mean, a lot of these time it takes a new CEO coming in to actually enact this change, right? It's really hard for the same person to suddenly crack the whip in a in a different environment. I mean, everyone sort of talks about like the time CEO, Ben Horowitz, P-time CEO thing. But like oftentimes I remember, I mean, one of the best business books I, I've I've read that I really enjoyed was Louis Gerstner's Who Said Elephants Can't Dance, right? And it's about coming into IBM when they were in terrible shape in like 1992 or whatever it was, 89, something like that. And like trying to change this culture of inertia when their share price started declining. I think part of the problem here, it's really hard to do uh, it, when you're the one that's been steering the ship, it's almost like, you know, you need a political office where you need the, the referendum and the people behind you to actually enact the change, uh, to get done. But then also, um, it's, uh, I think these businesses today just have such a monopoly, right? That there's like, especially on search for Google and, you know, the browser in a lot of cases and the email client and others, right? They actually don't need to be insanely efficient to uh, make the business run as is. No, not at all. The other thing is like, there's a difference between, and if you think of it from like a priority standpoint, there's you know, how do you reward the top performers? How do you find the people who are exceptional and make sure they have uh, active coaching and career pathing and pay increases and all of that? And at least in my experience, the Google HR process and what Rashad, you experienced, and I had the same thing when I was there, the perf process is a lot more about spotting the top five or 10% talent. And it's not really geared towards managing out the bottom 10%. They kind of said, well, if we're going to pick a side, let's focus on like identifying the rock star talent, not to overuse the term rock star here, but, you know, to change that to be one where you're trying to actually manage out the bottom 10 
is another complicated process. They have to they have to start from from scratch, in my opinion. Yeah, the, re- the rewards themselves, I guess, and how they manifest, uh, how this actually like manifests itself in a culture standpoint. I I, I found that like. In general, a lot of people don't have a bias to action. Uh, just, and this is true of startups as well as you know venture capital firms as well as big companies. Like a lot of people are just much more comfortable operating within the lines, right? And, and having some guidance. And then when you give them guidance, encouraging them to go forward. And that's the way. I don't know what percentage of people. Probably a, a low percentage of founders. Probably a uh, you know a slightly higher, but still low percentage of of employees that work at startups. So probably a decently high percentage of people that work at a company like Google, there's certain comfort in it, right? There's like, you're kind of given a set agenda to go forward on. Uh, I was going to say, we, we experienced this. Look, we use Zoom mostly. Zach, were you using Google Meet uh, during COVID? Like whenever that was, 2020, like March, you know, apocalyptic COVID times. Zoom, yeah. Because, I mean, I wasn't at Google at that point in time. We were using Zoom at, at Flatiron. Right. So, obviously, Google made us switch all the, to the Google suite of products, and one of them was Meet. And uh, I experienced this in terms of just, like, priorities and what they could get done if they if they really, like, put their resources towards it. When COVID hit, all these companies were scrambling for good cause to say, you know, we're going to help our customers. We're going to give these products out for free. And Google Meet at the time was like this bifurcated between Meet and Hangouts. And it was super confusing. The UI UI sucked. Like it was always blurry. It never seemed to like work just right. And then in like five subsequent weeks, we get updates for like company-wide updates about how we're helping on the COVID front. And the like product velocity for Google Meet was absurd. Like it went from like the max capacity was 10 people to like a hundred people to like 500 people in one meeting. <laughs> like the, the demonstration of like what they could do was, was pretty amazing, like pretty remarkable when everyone actually rallied around it and all these genius engineers were like focused and working on something. We're going to cut this part of you saying nice things about Google, by the way, just so you know, that's not like all your friends that are mad at you or this is going to be eliminated from the podcast, just so you know. It's really hard, right? Like you basically stumble upon this cash cow. You're like, all right, we've got this machine. Google search, you mean? Yeah, Google search. We're like, here's this machine where somebody tells me exactly what they want. And I don't even have to ask them. They actually tell me without them asking. <laughs> and then like, maybe, maybe what I can do is like show them an ad for the thing they already told me they wanted. And you're like, that is literally the best business model in the history of the world. Uh, and so you don't want to mess with it. Right. So you actually end up in this culture where your your core cash cow is a little bit of like a sacred thing where actually moving fast and breaking things and doing constant updates has a potential pretty big negative effect. And then you, you know, you swing into these other product areas and you still have the same people and the same culture and the same management. And some of that, maybe most of that culture ends up like pushing over and because you don't have a crisis and you don't have like a ton of competition, you never get that like push that Rashad saw uh, with Google Meet. I noticed it as well. I had some startups I was working with who were using Meet and you could see it get like incrementally better. They still don't have a desktop app, which drives me insane. Uh, but whatever they could do in the browser, they got they got better. And it's just hard, right? Because you're managing like two distinct, not just two in their case, probably like 10 distinct cultures. 
And some of the things I think they did actually really well back in the day was they kept, like as an example, they kept YouTube separate, right? YouTube had its own brand, its own leadership, in some sense, its own culture. You know, Android, at least in the beginning, had a similar kind of hands-off, like really strong leadership that would drive at least as fast as they possibly could. To me, unless your core culture is at like pace, it's going to be really difficult to have any sort of, this is the, this is the like move fast and break thing project. And this is the like move slow and don't fuck it up project. It's really hard to do that without breaking the, the products apart. And Google has always kind of struggled to do it. And then they make a few unbelievably good decisions with YouTube and Android in particular. And there's just like one glaring exception to me, which I can never put my hands around how this happened because it makes no sense in the grand scheme of things, which is Google Photos. Because of all the like core Google products, Google Photos is one of the most remarkable pieces of software I've ever used in my entire life. It just nailed it. They nailed every piece of the use case from like the indexing to the search, to the auto backups, to the way they display it. It's phenomenal, right? To the point where it's like one of the only products I see my iPhone, I don't use an iPhone, but like some of my iPhone friends using. How that happened in the suite of Google is like still shocking to me to this day. So whoever drove that project is probably one of the best Google employees they've ever had. I've actually never used Google Photos. So now I'm going to have to go. Dude, that's what I'm saying. Well, because it's it's good software. That's probably why you're... Even with that, with like, it's, it's undisputably better than the Apple Photos, whatever, iCloud sharing app that thing is, is a nightmare. Like you try to create a shared album, you send it to you, dude, I sent it to you. No, send it to me again. Like, yeah, yeah, no, that's terrible. That's a terrible, yeah. Apple deserves, but still looking people like it, it still got the green bubble effect because it's a Google product versus like, oh, totally. Logan, this is what we need to do. We need to find the PM or whomever drove the Google photos thing to launch. It just invested in that, whoever that person is. I would just want to hear the story. Like, how did you do this? in a sea of products that move at the glacier pace and have like when did this happen because because maps has been successful and obviously you know gmail's been successful and analytics i mean i know that was somewhat of an acquisition but analytics is so like there there have been other stuff right and like slides or docs or whatever it is what what do you think makes this uniquely better is it just like significantly better than the alternative where you know gmail wouldn't be that case I guess like maybe if you look through the products that have eventually broken out and gotten to great scale, right? Gmail, Maps, Photos is a good one. It's actually like one of the most popular apps, not just photo apps, just apps in general in, in the world. Uh, historically, it's kind of been when there's an established but not great product that you can like iterate on. You can tweak it. So you have this like initial game plan that you don't have to devise yourself. You can be like, all right, make that thing that's like mediocre, just better. Uh, and that was true of like iCloud photos and that was true of maps with MapQuest and that was true of, you know, if you go all the way back to um, even Google Docs to a certain point, right? You, there was like the desktop Word app. You're like, hey, what if we could all write in the same document at the same time? So there's like a little bit of a map for them. And I guess in that case, they've they've done like reasonably well. The photos one stands out to me just because it was one where Apple was first. And like, usually it doesn't work that way. Like usually it works the other way around and Apple somehow was first and screwed it up and, and Google built a better product. Uh, and how that happened, I couldn't tell you. 
they just, they figured out all the little annoying sharing and uh, backup and where my photos sit. The face AI thing that like recognizes the person and then you can just search people and then find pictures that thing. I mean, Apple's decent at that, but I, I agree. I mean, Apple's not great on these like software product builds and stuff. One of the things I'm not really sure about, I mean, obviously we have these businesses that are more profitable uh, or and entrenched in a very literal, like they're, you know, they scale infinitely in a way that historical monopolies didn't, right? And then you have all these uh, things that are built into them in different ways that kind of lock them in more and more. And then you have a generation of entrepreneurs that are running these companies or operators, as the case may be, that are have read all the business books and have like studied all the disruption and change management and theory of all this stuff in a way that people in the early 1900s or whatever, you know, the automobile people couldn't do. And so I, I, I wonder, you know, all these like side bets that Facebook makes or, or Google makes or, you know, Amazon makes, to what extent is it that their core business is so much better versus that they just know the playbook of disruption and they're like trying to assess all this stuff out so they don't get disrupted as well. And so they're trying to innovate versus we just haven't had a new platform change that's really, you know, occurred to to unlock those specific companies. And I think you're seeing Facebook get chipped away at right now in a meaningful way. But Apple, you know, Google, Amazon, they've been pretty resilient in like their ability to continue to innovate. Look, there's a lot of smart people who work at these companies. Like, let's not forget, like, really sharp people who are very skilled and went to school and got promoted 15 times and kind of, you know, work hard. Obviously, like, there's a component, it's probably 20% of employees at all of these companies that don't do shit and probably shouldn't work there. But the reality is there actually are, like, a lot of reasonably great folks and they are well compensated, Right. That's how, I mean, one of the things I would argue that Google figured out probably best and, and others copied was, well, hey, we have this amazing business model. What if we just like paid more than the companies who don't have this business model so that we don't keep losing people and we can attract some of the best minds? And if we grab all the best minds, like good things will happen because we have the balance sheet to do this. And that's in a sense, what they were able to do, right? It was, you kind of threw money at the problem and they did it in the right way. Instead of investing in, you know, one specific product, they invested in, in people. Yeah. Uh, and that has paid off over and over. And my guess is the common theme in the successful projects versus the unsuccessful projects is just who is the individual in charge? I, I think a lot of this always just comes down to like one or two kind of remarkable headstrong leaders who just fight through the crap and and get it done. And the difference between success and failure is kind of who did you put in charge? And that would be my guess. The thing about One Medical is like interesting to me, and I, I haven't, I, I truly haven't spent enough time looking at it. I've been focused on other things, but I think many people are a little confused about One Medical's underlying business model and like some of the nuances about it. I'm not, this is not about like good or bad. It's just kind of like classically how One Medical has made its money. You know, being a high-end primary care shop where you have longer appointments and you have nice offices and you have offices in very expensive places tends to mean that you have 
a much more expensive underlying cost structure than a classic primary care office that you would see in wherever across the country, right? So yep. you have more cost inherently, uh, assuming the docs are paid basically the same, which I think is probably accurate. So when medical is like compensated for this underlying cost structure being more expensive or theoretically compensated for it by doing two things. One is they charge this like subscription fee. It's essentially yep. a yearly fee of I think something like, like 200 or $250 per person to help cover the cost of the fact that you know, everything is a little more, more expensive. The other thing they've typically done, which I think is people don't realize, is they've typically aligned themselves with a local hospital system. And they've become essentially affiliated with very expensive healthcare systems like a Mount Sinai in New York. And that allows them to get the rate card that a Mount Sinai or equivalent system gets for reimbursement, meaning they get paid by commercial insurance companies at a higher rate because they're billing underneath the larger hospital system. That's actually the business model, right? Like it's, it's, it's a rate arbitrage with a large healthcare provider who has negotiating leverage. It's not just that well, and isn't it, everyone says the primary care business is like a wedge, right? Like everything else, primary care doesn't really make any money compared to everything else around the ancillary services for the business, right? And so it, whenever you looked at the financials of the company, it was always trading at like some stupid revenue multiple compared to like what their profitability was and growth rate was and all that. And it was one of these, like the market's so big and you can monetize so many different ways, but they never did. I mean, look, people talk about like the market is so big, but it, it, I would, first I would question like, well, which market are we talking about here? Because one medical's business model requires people who are willing to pay 200 to $250 a year in a cash fee for access. That basically limits you to major cities across the country right away, right? So you've yeah. already like shrunk the market because of this cash component. Plus there's a brand and consumer expectation that you're going to one medical. And they're very nice, by the way. They're very, very nice offices. And like, I'm sure it's, it's wonderful. Service. Wonderful, right. It's but for like yuppies, right? Yeah, it's for you and me and Kyle basically to go to yeah. have like one medical care. And like, it's very nice. But that also, there's an expectation of the office, which means it's more expensive there's an expectation of the time that the doctors say. So I think this idea of like, well, primary care is big and therefore the market's big is like true, but this is not primary care in the general sense. Like this is a very niche, somewhat bougie primary care that works in major cities and wealthy populations. And it's, you know, it does work, but in, in those populations. And then it's like, ancil like which ancillaries? Because the reality is like most One Medical members are younger and healthier. Yeah. And so they tend to not have the consistent ancillaries you would think of in like a Medicare Advantage population that are 65 and older. And actually most of the like theoretical money to be made in primary care is actually in the Medicare Advantage and Medicare's risk-taking segment, which is 65 and older. And it's this whole totally yeah. different business model about all the Oak Street and City Block and all that stuff. Oak Street's probably the best example. There's ChenMed, there's Agilon, there's a few others, but it's it's not the primary care things most people would know because it's exclusively focused on that Medicare segment. 
So anyway, I don't know. I'm I'm normally like I see the Amazon strategy and like this is really sharp. It's a market expansion play. You can bring your like cost efficiency structure and analytics to it. You can make you can do real work on this business. Like the Whole Foods thing made, made a ton of sense to me. Uh, this one, I'm not sure I get it yet, but I haven't. I have to think a little bit more. And a lot of it comes down to it's really an insurance mechanism to get like, like one medical makes this money because of these affiliations with large hospital systems. And that's not yeah. Amazon's game. That's not what they play. Amazon plays direct to consumer cost efficiency. So like, what's the theory here? I'm not sure. You know, what's funny is we're going to litigate this and it's so important in the healthcare world or whatever, but it's a $3 billion acquisition by a $1.2 trillion company, you know? So like, it's just, it's so small to Amazon that like, we actually, I mean, Sure, it seems it's big and it's important and, you know, whatever. It should be scrutinized. But to Amazon, like this is a tuck-in acquisition of all tuck-in acquisitions, kind of a flyer on who knows. It could be bundled. If it's bundled with Prime and it increases Prime stickiness by like a couple basis points, like it's probably accretive to them, right? I think you pretty much nailed it. Like that's probably it. It's like, this is such a small bet. We can bundle it up. We can take one medicals underlying technology, the appointment booking and medical management and messaging and all that. And maybe we can unbundle it and offer it up as like virtual Amazon care. And we don't have to build the tech stack because it is an annoying, complicated tech stack to build because it's very healthcare specific. So I could see them thinking like, we're going to take the tech and apply it to this national virtual care model that a prime member gets. That makes sense. That's probably the best. <laughs> that's probably the best example I've heard so far of somebody walking me through it. So, like, yeah, that could be that could be it. But I agree, it's such a small number. I don't know. I just made that up. Look at you, though. Us getting you finally to talk about healthcare on this uh, with a mic behind your face. You know, it's uh, it took us long enough here. But Kyle, thanks for uh, thanks for joining. Hey guys, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Where in the world are you? Are you in Austin? I'm at my condo in Austin. Where in Austin are you? Uh, downtown. Nice. I lived in Austin for some part of the pandemic. It's, uh, have you been there for a while? Born and raised. So, uh, maybe give us your background. How, how, so take us to Multicoin and, uh, your most recent fund. Sure. So, uh, I guess quick background on myself. Um, hi everyone. I'm Kyle Samani, co-founder and managing partner at Multicoin Capital, uh, born and raised in Austin. That's where the firm is based today. Been programming since I was a little kid. Studied finance at NYU. I met my co-founder Tushar at NYU, and we became good friends in college, bonding over our shared interest at the intersection of software and finance. Um, after college, did a tech startup um, in the healthcare space that ultimately didn't go anywhere. Um, got into crypto in 2016. Discovered this thing called Ethereum. I had heard of Bitcoin, but quite frankly, wasn't very interested in it. Um, but I discovered Ethereum is pretty cool because you could program it and do stuff. And I, I like doing stuff. Uh, and uh, kind of fell down the rabbit hole over the course of 2016 and, and into early 2017. By spring of 2017, um, realized I had developed a full-time internet hobby and made the decision to turn that hobby into a profession. Um, so we launched our, our Liquid Fund on October 1st, 2017, and we've since added- What, added what is three. Liquid Fund? Like, what does that mean, Liquid Fund? Uh, we, we have a open-ended vehicle. It can go long, it can go short. It has a portfolio of, of to liquid tokens. It can also make liquid investments as well, but predominantly liquid. Um, you can imagine we have a big pile. How'd you go about actually launching, I mean, launching that? So you're coming out of a healthcare startup and, uh, you, you, you know, you're a programmer by background and interested in finance, but like, 
how do you actually go about raising capital and I don't know, getting the access to set all that up, especially, I mean, now crypto funds are much more plentiful, but at the time, I assume that you were doing a lot of novel stuff. Yeah. I mean, we had absolutely no idea what we were doing. Um, we got it done primarily as a function of, of luck and willpower. Um, I mean, I, I've probably taken a thousand LP meetings in the last, you know, five years. I don't really take LP meetings anymore, but like we used to take a lot of them. Um, and you know, just pitch people and it started off with, Hey, I think this guy's 50 K he can throw around, you know, and we were taking 25 K 50 K checks at the beginning. Did you know what types of things you were going to invest in? Or did you just think, Hey, crypto's interesting and I'm spending a ton of time doing it. And so give me money and I'll find where opportunity exists. Like what was the actual pitch early on? Yeah. I mean, early on it was, Hey, you know, we know stuff going on in crypto. We can outperform some, some beta index. And it was, wasn't a lot more refined than that. Um, it took us a few years to figure out what our source of alpha is. I, I think we actually should have been more honest with ourselves when we started. Hey, what is our source of alpha? And, and, and been more disciplined about that. And we did not. Um, it's okay. We, we learned from our mistakes and, and have refined our, our thinking and, and processes over time. We are, we are now pretty clear about our sources of alpha. Um, but we were just young and immature and just running as fast as we could. And, um, you know, got a little lucky along the way. Um, Today, you know, where our, our focus, or I should say where we think our alpha is, a few things. Um, I think that both the easiest and the hardest is having a longer time horizon than everyone else. Um, we do not make investments unless we intend to hold them forever. That doesn't mean we will have to hold them forever, but but the bar has to be when you, when you buy the thing that like assuming things go according to plan, you will be holding it 15 years from now. Um, and we don't really get out of bed to do anything else. Um and it took us a while to appreciate the importance of that, the power of that, and actually the structural source of alpha that that represents. And are your LPs, I assume you're taking in LPs that, how is that actually structured, I, I guess? Because I saw you guys closed a fund as well. And so how, how does that how does that mechanism actually work with a fund cycle? Yeah, so in our liquid fund, we can hold stuff forever. LPs have to redeem. And obviously we will sell an asset to fund the redemption. Got it. So that's structured like a hedge fund, basically. Correct. In our, in our uh, venture funds, um, our aim is to return assets in kind. So like we have made the largest in-kind crypto distribution ever with Sol out of Venture Fund 1. Um, and like Multicoin GP has never sold a single Sol that it has taken as carry. Um, I've never sold a single Sol that I own personally outside of the fund. And like we continue to hold those assets because we want to be long those assets ourselves. And again, this comes back to my original point of we want to buy things that we intend to hold for 15 years or longer. So that's, I mean, impressive. Uh, Solana right now, just for people that don't, I mean, it's it's one of the top, what, five most popular uh, cryptocurrencies out there. You you guys got involved at what price? It went up to what price? And what price is it today? Uh, started at $0.04, cents, went to $250, and now it's about $40. Wow. When you guys invested in Solana, were you just in the coin or were you also in the financing rounds? There, there was no equity of Solana Labs that was ever sold. Solana Labs only ever sold tokens via SAFTs. Um, and we were by far the largest owner of Solana SAFTs. Where did their operating capital come from to hire their employees? Sell, and Selling the SAFTs. So selling the coin to the market is how they fundraised? Correct. Got it. I thought that was illegal. No. But I, it wasn't, wasn't the whole, I mean, this is where I do get confused about the nuance. Like, wasn't the idea of an ICO essentially frowned upon, if not pursued by the SEC? And what makes the, what's the distinction? I'm truly asking, like, what's the distinction here between them selling it to 
hedge funds and venture funds to fundraise for their operating capital versus an ICO? Is it just like accredited investor status or what's the difference? Yeah, so Solana Labs has never conducted an ICO. Um, the closest thing they did to an ICO is they did a coin list offering in March of 2020, about a week after Black Thursday. Uh, and uh, that was a uh, not allowed for US consumers. You had to be KYC'd and it's all non-US people who engage in that token offering. That, that auction cleared at 22 cents. Um, the token then started trading shortly thereafter on Binance um, among non-US participants. At some point later, Coinbase chose to list the asset based on whatever criteria they use and then FTX and others, et cetera. Um, Multicoin invested in Solana Safts pre-token launch um, and we had a lockup after the tokens were launched for, it was a nine month lockup. Uh, and, um, you know, the general theory here with, and those, those SAFs were sold as Reg D securities, um, right? And maybe, can, can you explain what a SAFT is, uh, just like in simple terms? Simple agreement for future tokens. Um, so obviously derived from a safe. Um, and uh, those are Reg D assets. Um, and the regulations on Reg D say you cannot resell a Reg D security to another accredited investor for either 30 or 90 days after you purchase it. I forget which one. Um, and you cannot resell it to the retail public for 365 days from the date of initial purchase. Um, that was complied with. Um, and then to the and started trading on international markets. Multicoin has never sold soul in US markets. Um, and I don't think we ever will. Um, and like, yeah, there's a weird gray of like, okay, this coin starts trading internationally. People start buying it. Coinbase and FTX and Gemini and Kraken start listing it. Like, what is it or what is it not? Um, obviously, this is being you know litigated today between the SEC and Ripple and some other folks as well. Um, but to be clear, Solana never sold sold tokens to American public. But you guys bought it as an international entity, then? Correct. All of our funds are Cayman entities. Got it. And then the L, where your LPs sit is irrelevant. It's the entity that's, it's the fund entity that's actually buying it, not the underlying LPs that matter. Uh, correct. Makes sense. So obviously Solana was a huge hit in fund one. How big was the, may, maybe just take us order of magnitude, like the liquid uh, side of, of what you guys run and then the different funds and what their progression was. Yeah, our liquid fund today is a few billion. Um, venture fund one uh, was 17 million. Um, and is, is one of the better performing venture funds out there. I would imagine with, with Soul at whatever, 20 cents or 15 cents. And yeah, I imagine you guys have done pretty well from that vintage. What vintage is that? I want to make sure, hopefully we don't compete against that vintage. July, 2018. Yeah. Okay, good. I think, I'm, I think I've skipped that vintage. And then Venture Fund 2 was raised in November of 2020. as a $100 million fund. It is fully deployed at this point um, and has a big pile of Soul in it as well. Also pretty low entry. Um, among a lot of other cool things too. Uh, and then we are currently deploying out of Venture Fund 3, which we raised in this past January, but we announced a few weeks ago. Um, Venture Fund 3 is a $430 million fund. Um, so three Venture Funds and then one Liquid Fund, a few billion in Liquid Fund, and obviously about 600 million or so across the 550 across the uh, Venture Funds. And what, um, so basically what got you excited originally as you were, uh, I mean, you mentioned Ethereum, which, uh, you know, I think Solana has a lot of parallels too, I guess, but maybe talk through like what you saw going on that got you interested in all this stuff to the extent that you were 
you know, initially willing to spend a lot of your time on the internet, uh, and then ultimately dedicating the initial part of your career and now ultimately, you know, a, a huge part of your career to it. So, uh, after my last startup kind of wound down in December of 2015, um, had to figure out something new to with my life. Um, I, one thing I, I knew about myself was that I'm not very good at coming up with new ideas, but I'm very good at taking an idea in front of me and critiquing it, um, and iterating on it. And so I, uh, made a, uh, packed myself of just like, hey, I just need to get five thousand ideas in front of me and just like go through just a ton of a ton of ideas. So I went to AngelList um, and I committed to go. You know, back I don't know if they still have this now, but but back in 2016, they had categories. It was like blockchain, fintech, you know, edtech, biotech, medtech, whatever, right? All the various categories. Um, and I committed that every single day I'd go through 100 startups in each category um, and like look at them and just like see what I thought, see what kind of inspiration it provided. Um, some of the startups I spent 20 seconds on, some of them I'd spend an hour and a half on. Um, and uh, I don't know, like the fifth or the sixth day I did this, I picked blockchain um, and went through those. And like of the hundred startups I went through that day, seven of them were like, or six of them were building on Ethereum. Um, and I never heard of Ethereum. The first day actually I did that of the first of that was um, uh, I did FinTech. And obviously a lot of people were using Stripe in their stack. So I remember like obviously Stripe was a well-known company even in, in early 2016 I said, okay, I need to know what the Stripe thing actually does. So I went and pulled up the docs and started fiddling around with it. And I was quite unimpressed. Um, all I could do was take a credit card payment. And I was like, well, this, like, why is this company the most hyped up company in Silicon Valley? I just found it to be strange. Wait, I, let me jump in and defend our portfolio company here. I uh, just, just let the record show. I'm, I'm not letting you say unimpressed with Stripe. I think you get kicked out of Redpoint for that, but I'll let you go on. Uh, I, I, at the time I wasn't, I didn't spend much time trying to answer the question of why it is impressive. I just, that was my immediate reaction in March, 2016. Um, and, uh, and, and so, but I fiddled around with the API and then about, you know, four or five, six, seven days later, sort of fiddling around with Ethereum. And although I couldn't express it in words at that time, um, it, it dawned on me the, the difference between permissions and permissionless finance. Um, and I, I understood Anything I can logically conceive, I can write in a fairly simple language and move around arbitrary units of value. Um, and I could not do that with Stripe. That was very clear. And I obviously did not know how to interact with interactive brokers or Robinhood or whatever, you know, other parts of the financial markets for other types of assets. Um, and, and when that kind of light bulb turned on, like that was my aha moment that this crypto thing is very interesting. Um, from there, then started to go down the rabbit hole of, Ethereum and then Bitcoin and all the Austrian economics and all the macro stuff around Bitcoin and and, and all which is a whole bunch of weird kind of silly things actually, um, and then obviously zero knowledge and then all the early applications of Ethereum and yada yada yada. But that that's kind of how I first got into the space was was when the light bulb really turned on and I understood permissionless versus permission finance. That was really the key the key thing. Can you exp like uh, expand on that a little bit? You know, I think we have a range of people of sophistication that that will follow that. But in your mind, in your words, like why why do you think that is a fundamental thing that's interesting? Financial markets are the the the. I mean, like like the general history of the internet is like take things that people want to do and then lower the friction to do them, and then people do more of them. And, and this is true across like basically every vector of the internet that is interesting. Um, and like the area, the vector that is the most untouched, arguably, is like finance. I mean, like education too, and healthcare, kind of sort of. But like finance is certainly the, a big one. Um, and like the process of like doing anything around money is very challenging 
uh, money transmitter business li licenses and all those things. If you want to trade equities, I mean, like the notion of getting plugged into night. Like I today run a multi-billion dollar hedge fund and I have absolutely no idea how to get plugged into Nizy. Like, I, like it, it is, it is so inaccessible. Um, uh, despite the sophistication and, and, you know, uh, assets we have, um, and making collapsing the entire finance stack to be extremely accessible, extremely open. Um, and where you, anyone can just define logic on how to move assets around. Um, and like by doing that, you enable the introduction of financial markets into all kinds of places where they could previously not exist. Um, so like social tokens and AMMs and all those kinds of things are some of the kind of core cool building blocks there. And we're just starting to see the implications of that. Um, but the other fairly obvious one is just like access. Like if you want to buy Apple stock, if you want to buy $200 of Apple stock and you live in Argentina, like you actually cannot do that um, because U.S. financial markets are not available to Argentinians who want to put $200 to work. If you want to put $2 million to work and you're in Argentina, like you can figure out a way to do it. But you can't do it with $200. Um, and like that kind of basic open access um, is, is a fairly important uh, primitive for the world. Um, and uh, do you know like <clears throat> in that like what other South American countries can you not buy U.S. equities in? Oh, basically, if you don't live in the United States or Western Europe, you cannot buy small dollars of U.S. equities. I'm not picking on Argentina specifically. But this is true for like between five and six billion people of eight billion people. And so I can't have an account, like they, a brokerage account in Brazil and purchase Apple stock. Not, not at the $100 level, no. At the some dollar threshold level, you get you know the VIP access or whatever. But at the like lowest tiers, like no. Um, access to U.S. capital, capital access to U.S. capital markets is a very permissioned thing. And is that a KYC thing that it's not cost effective to like get to know who these customers are? Yeah, so it, it's a function of, of cost, right? So you have like nice. Okay, you've got whatever. Uh, what's it called? Uh, what's the custodian that has all DTCC? Then you've got Nizy, then you have the banks and the brokerages, and then you have the Robinhood, then you have the international ones, you have the AQRs, and you have like, there's like, there's like 14 layers of intermediaries between Brazilian guy who wants to put $200 into whatever, Apple stock, and actual Apple stock. And every one of those people are, is taking a fee, some of which are percentage denominated, some of which are, are fixed dollar denominated. And so like, there's just some minimum dollar threshold, like before it even economically makes sense to do so. Um, and so... There's, that's a big part of it. And then obviously there's lots of political problems as well. Again, I don't know about Brazil specifically, but like lots of governments try and prevent capital controls and those kinds of things and, and like prevent asset ownership and such. Um, and so having permissionless global financial rails, uh, which anyone can access and use, um, is, is like a fundamentally important provision in finance. Um, the, the more you learn about how financial markets actually work, the more you realize like how much they don't, like if you were to rederive them for, from first principles, like how clearly... The re-derivation for first principles differs from actual reality in 2022. Well, I mean, aside from the minimum dollar amount, pretty much anybody in a modern third world country, and I know that's like an odd thing to say, but like pretty much anywhere in South America, you can own U.S. equities, European equities. You can try. I, I understand maybe at $100, you might not be able to, but for the rest of the population, you absolutely can, right? I mean, the whole breakthrough of robin hood was like enabling right like people under a thousand dollars to like do cool stuff well um, the breakthrough in robin hood was allowing for free trading because they sold your payment for order flow to places like citadel and others so i'm not saying that's a bad thing by the way it was about cost reduction on people is good but the, but the cost reduction but the customer base of robin hood is people who like have an average of under a thousand dollars right like or the median or whatever 
um, the point is, is the long tail is, is important and, and interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know how you can like look at the internet and be like, oh, we enabled access to information for everybody. So you don't have to go to an encyclopedia or a library and then like look at financial markets and say the same thing. No, I just think that the people say, you know, it's hard for folks in other countries to get access to certain financial products. And then actually when you pale back the details, it's just not true. That actually in most major countries where people have savings, obviously there's plenty of countries where people don't have savings, but in the places where they do, like getting access to buy equities, European, local, US equities is pretty readily available. I mean, you can do it through, you know, one of the new modern banks, like a new bank or anything along those lines, right? Like there are ways to, to do this. I understand at the absolute tail end for people who can only invest a few hundred bucks, there are some onboarding struggles because there's a lot of regulation and rules for the people who are providing access into those financial ecosystems to comply with. And they struggle to make money on the $100 customers. So in a sense, like there's a reason why it's hard for that because there are layers of rules and regulations to for folks to comply with and that costs money to, to do it. And so the question then becomes like, well, how does crypto remove those costs? Because you're still buying a U.S., equity at the end of the day, there's still some fundamental like market you have to participate in. Those costs don't go away, right? No, no they, they do ex explicitly. I mean, cri crypto takes the entire value stack of DTCC, banks, brokers, exchanges, margining engines, international, whatever, whatever, wires, that entire stack of 10 to 15 entities and collapses it to the gas cost you pay on the blockchain, which in the case of Solana is measured in, in the fraction of a penny. Only for buying for buying a digital asset, sure. But no, I mean, like you if if you can represent a US equity on a blockchain, you can take that entire value stack I just represented and for any amount of money conduct a transaction for a fraction of a penny and have all of the trust guarantees all the way through. So but the company that you're buying that digital asset from still has to own the underlying equity, right? There's a centralized entity that's saying this coin represents, you know, one-tenth of a share of Apple. There's still a company that has to comply with all those rules. It has an underlying cost structure they have to deal with. So those costs aren't gone. They're eaten by that middleman company that's providing this pseudo-equity coin that says this thing is worth the same as an Apple, you know, single stock or some, you know, a fractional stock, right? It's just shifted. I mean, my, my, my point is, is in the correct instantiation of financial markets, the entire current value stack goes away because it is unnecessary and you collapse the entire thing to a gas cost transaction on Solana. The, D the DTCC is not providing value. Like they are a leech on the system. The NYSE is also a leech on the system. Like they're all, they're so bloated in their cost structures. And if you can actually reimagine the entire system from first principles, what you get to is it's just a gas cost and that's it. Well, right, but at the end of the day, like to participate in the financial markets, there's a reason there are these like layers of rules, regulations, because People used to be bad actors and they would steal your money. And now there's like a whole bunch of compliance issues that you have to deal with. And if you go and you say, okay, we're going to use this like third party company who's going to represent some share in some company in crypto land, and then you're going to buy it. You're not actually buying the underlying equity to be clear, right? Like you're buying a digital representation of that underlying equity and then trusting this third-party company that does have to then comply with all of those rules. My point is that at the end of the day, somebody is still paying all the fees to buy the underlying equity because you can't actually buy the equity in crypto. It doesn't work. You're buying a representation of it and then there's another company you're trusting to actually deliver who has all of those costs. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking past each other. What I'm saying is reimagine the system from the ground up from first principles. If you do that, the entire value stack of the 15-inch intermediaries between Guy in Brazil and Apple stock and DDCCC collapses to a gas cost on the blockchain. So that guy in Brazil decides he wants to buy 100 shares of Apple stock through some theoretical new digital crypto exchange. And then instead of typing in 150, he types in 150,000. Huh? Right? Like he makes a mistake. Okay. So like, I mean, he doesn't have the money to fill those shares. What if he does have the money? He just made a mistake. Okay. Then you probably want to sell and undo it. Right. So, but now you've actually got to unwind your transaction that you probably just spent what in gas fees, like a fraction of a penny, hundreds of hundreds of thousands. No, there's no way it's a fraction of a, of a, of a penny because you have to have like all the underlying intermarries. What, what, what do you mean? This is just not true. <laughs> what, what do you mean? Like it's not a blockchain costs a fraction of a penny and transactions clear every 400 milliseconds to buy an, an unregulated representation of a regulated equity. Sure. Yeah, of course it costs nothing to buy an unregulated piece of this, but like once you get into the actual underlying equity, there's all your cost structure. Like the point is you have to interact with the financial system, right? At the end of the day, you still have to interact with the financial system. So this idea that like your gas fee is low, sure, absolutely. Maybe the initial gas fee is low, but somebody else is dealing with all of the underlying regulatory and compliance issues. If you're saying you think the world should be in totally unregulated stock market with no intermediaries, that's a whole different conversation. I, I, I guess that's what you're saying. It should be an unregulated market with no intermediaries. I'm not saying there can't be no regulation. I'm saying the number of intermediaries between the DTCC and the exchange and the banks and the brokers and then the international wire fees and then the international brokers, that is unnecessary. You need some basic notion of KYC to make sure there's not terrorist financing involved in money laundering. Beyond that, there's no actual value being provided in the rest of the stack. The rest of the stack is just, is just uh, what's the word? Uh, cruft, like you know, accumulated over 60 years of a regulated market evolving. The only value you're actually providing is KYC to prevent terrorist financing. I, I mean, I, it's just so hard to unpack that because there's like just so many, there's so many problem statements with that sentence. I understand that sometimes the middlemen can feel like unnecessary bureaucracy, but the reality is like for you as an individual to participate in these financial markets, and to be safe and to be protected and to know that you're not getting scammed. Like there are layers of intermediaries to help protect you from, from those scams. Now, keep in mind, like purchasing US equities as a any citizen of the United States and then even internationally, it's really not that expensive, right? As you mentioned yourself, even Robinhood has taken the cost down to $0, right? So it's not like there's some underlying fee structure that consumers are hit with to buy Apple stock. You can literally go into Robinhood and buy stock today for free. You can go to Schwab with a minimum balance. You can buy stock for free. So like, where are all these hidden costs that you think is, is exists? I'm, I'm just like, the facts would say otherwise, no? No, I mean, we're not talking about Americans. We're talking about people who have a max balance of 100 or $200 who live in countries that are far away. So the, the market opportunity for extremely small dollar, third world country investors to purchase US equities is what crypto enables. It is a thing crypto enables. And also keep in mind, we're talking about several billion people. Like, I, I don't think you're appreciating. This is between, I don't know, 10 on the low end and 50% on the high end of the global population. But what I would say is that actually a lot of these people do have access to financial markets. Like if you go country by country, they do actually have access to many of these markets, especially with the new banks. So like, 
everybody says they don't. And then you ask country by country and it turns out like the vast majority of people actually do. And then the issue with the people who don't have access tends to be that they actually just don't have enough money. They just don't have enough money to invest. Like that's the issue. It's not because that they can't get access to it. It's because they don't have a hundred dollars to invest in stocks because they need the hundred dollars to live, right? It's a, it's a savings issue. It's not a technology issue. You can get access to all of these markets in most, not all, but in most countries where there are like any sort of modern banking system. You can do it in Brazil. You can do it in Mexico. You can do it pretty much in any country in Europe. You can do it in Canada. You can do it in the US. There are even most places in modern banking systems in Africa, you can now get access to this as long as you have enough money. I agree with you. The reason people don't participate in these markets is typically because they don't have the money to do it. Yeah. I mean, look, people get started with $5. They get started with $100. They get started with $1,000. Like, but you're admitting here that like large swaths of the population on the order of hundreds of millions or billions of people across Southeast Asia, Africa, Latin, whatever, like don't have access. Like they need to get started somewhere. Yeah, I'm saying the underlying issue is not technology. It's it's actually the fact that they don't have the income for it. The issue is not like a technical issue. It's a unfortunate feature of inequality in society. It has nothing to do with underlying technology. It's like if you don't have the money to save to invest and you live paycheck to paycheck, you can't invest. It has nothing to do with like, I can't get access to this because it's too you know complicated or expensive or whatnot. It's a lack of savings. I mean, we can do the math and we can argue about the actual, like what that population size looks like and what the actual investable dollars of their savings look like and all this. But I would argue it's a fairly tiny market and, and actually getting, in a sense, beaten up and chipped at by the neobanks that are now picking up more and more consumers in all of these countries is like these digital first banks. Like it's already happening, right? It's coming from the banking system through the new the, the neobanks. So you've seen this in Brazil, you're seeing this in in Mexico, you're seeing it in Colombia. Uh, you know, there's like a massive adoption of neobanks and you're going to continue to see this across across the globe. So I kind of look at it as like this tiny market that's shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. I understand this is just one UK use case, but this use case to me, it adds up from a dollar's perspective to be reasonably small and extremely hard to make money in. Extremely hard to make money, even if it exists. Like if you're gonna make money as a middleman provider, you have to charge somebody something, right? Yeah, I'm not arguing about how much money I make from this. I'm arguing about the importance is unlocking financial markets for a few hundred million or a billion people. Yeah, but you can't unlock it unless you have a for-profit company that can provide that service. That's just not true. The whole point of crypto is the entire cost of providing financial market services effectively collapses to zero. You go on Serum, I mean, market makers charge their spread, but like there's just no other cost. And then gas fees, which is a fraction of the penny. For a digital asset, I totally agree with you. For a pure digital asset where you can prove ownership of that digital asset, sure. Well, this is my entire point to begin with is that the entire premise of the exact current stack on which assets are represented is broken because you're saying this is only true for digital assets. But like at the end of the day, a stock certificate and a DTCC and a share of Sol and Solana blockchain are, for all practical purposes, the same thing. Now, there's I realize mechanical and legal differences because of the last hundred years of history. But like, you're representing a share of a thing, and like, you want to be able to trade it. Like, that's the core premise. Yeah. So I guess my my point is that there's a reason why, as you said, like hundred years of regulatory and kind of consumer protection issues, as well as like compliance issues from the company side. There's you know reasons why you can't just my my point is is that 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 if you were to reimagine it from the ground up today without 100 years of luggage you would not derive what we currently have because what we currently have does not make sense having having pieces of paper in the DTCC is crazy having NYSE 
not have margining is fucking crazy. Having a web of brokers and banks hook into this whole thing who have to nod it against each other and have Robinhood have to post collateral because the price of GameStop moved too much in a day is absolutely nonsensical. Like, there, there are so many parts of this whole system. The fact that it's only nine to five is crazy. Like, you, you, you just, you actually look at the actual mechanics of how these markets work, both commodity markets, which are largely unregulated, and equities markets, which are obviously much more regulated. Like, and they, they're just like completely don't make sense. If you look at FTX and Binance through the last 24 months, and you look at CME and LSE and whatever else, like the crypto markets uh, ignore three arrows blowing up and those kinds of things, which are just unsecured credit issues. Like, Binance and FTX function way better than NYSE and LSE and everything else. Not LSE, London, whatever, Mercantile Exchange, whatever it's called, CME. Um, because they're actually derived from first principles to be structured as correct financial markets. No, they are fully collateralized purchasing of an underlying crypto asset. Like, yes, if I hand you the money immediately for the underlying asset, you're not going to blow up, right? Because there's no credit risk being taken. I totally agree. And that just limits the opportunity to things that you can transfer money immediately for without any, you don't want to offer credit to anybody, right? You need to provide the individual dollar to go and grab that thing right away. And all that does is shrink the market for potential buyers to be significantly smaller. That means everybody's got to come up with the cash to buy everything all the time right away. Like the history of financial markets and the reason why financial markets are so interesting as like a market expander is because we can issue credit. Like credit is a feature, right? Credit is something that is really interesting to financial markets because it allows you to take a dollar of savings and turn it into $10 of lending. And that grows the opportunity for that dollar to continue. This is like the, you know, the basics of, of banking, right? Like my savings become somebody else's borrowing. And all of a sudden I can take my dollar of savings and turn it into multiple dollars of lending because there's an intermediary taking on that credit risk. And that intermediary is ultimately growing the economy by doing the lending and taking on that credit risk. That's like you know, finance in a nutshell, if you will, not the whole thing, but pieces of it. And I agree with you in, in crypto, if I have to put up the dollar to get the thing and that dollar has to be there right away, perfect in the sense, right? There's no credit risk inherently because there's no credit, but without credit, what's the point of the financial system? It's just dollar for dollar trading of assets. Like, sure, that exists, but that's going to shrink the system completely. When you do it from first principles, you would never design it in that way because you can't introduce credit. The minute you start to introduce credit to your point, you get these blowups right? Because you get third parties who are ultimately taking on borrowing and lending risk. And every once in a while, they blow up. I mean, like, but you can have those, those two things are not mutually exclusive. You can have the core exchange be running in this way. And then you can have banks extend credit on top of that, which is what you know, a lot of it works today. But like, literally, in the case of London, uh, whatever London Mercantile Exchange and lithium or iron or nickel, whatever, whatever the thing was a few, a few months ago, they literally unwound the trades. Like that is, that is theft. That is the definition of theft. Like you unwind the trades. I mean, like th that is just not okay. I, there are, there are gates in place. We can talk about like the pros and cons of being able to unwind trades. Like I, I understand in a perfect conceptual system, you know, you never have to unwind anything because nobody ever blows up. Nobody ever makes a mistake, but that's just not how reality plays out. Like you know, the immediate instant liquidation of everybody if there is like a price spike, I, I continue to argue is not a feature of a financial system. It is a bug. Like the ability to normally unwind a system where you've got like liquidity dries up and you have credit spread all over the place and you have to figure out like who actually has the money. 99 out of 100 times, it is better to have that version of the system because you can get like an organized deleveraging event 
yes, there are there are situations, and I'm not familiar with every individual one, but there definitely have been situations where you've seen trades unwound and it feels like the insiders have won. I, I think that's a very fair statement. And like you look at those and you're like, this is kind of bullshit. Like, I can't believe And I think the example Kyle's talking about was one of those things. Now we could yeah, it was yeah. a it was a mess, but uh yes. It's it's hard to argue with like, yes, every once in a while the ability to reverse a trade gets abused by the massive insiders and there's like some unfair outcomes that do happen. And that's a trade you make for the 99 other times where actually that like deleveraging event in a normal orderly fashion is a really good thing because you don't see these like giant immediate blowups and then people lose all their money. Uh, anyway, I, I think this idea of like the fact that in crypto, I can like hand you a dollar and you give me the thing is actually like a severely limiting factor for most financial markets, because in most financial markets, you actually do want to extend credit because without credit, businesses that own illiquid assets, people who don't have the money right away, people who are about to get paid, they are unable or unable to participate in the financial ecosystem because they don't have the cash. This is what this is the credit system, what brokers do, this is what banks do. I, I mean, it's funny because I do a lot of these conversations and I realize sometimes, maybe this is the case, there's like, I view something as a feature that the other person views as a bug. And we kind of like religiously disagree. That might be the case, the case here. But I do think it's important to acknowledge the benefits of having these middlemen and brokers and kind of like credit issuing entities. Can, can we shift gears a little bit to, I mean, I feel like trading and all of this stuff, we could probably uh, talk about this for a long time. I, uh, Kyle, I guess one of the other things that would be interesting to talk about just because it was uh, topical, I guess we're recording this on a Tuesday and uh, this past week, um, uh, weekend, Mario, who I would consider a buddy, wrote a, uh, a long piece about uh, Helium, which my uh, I think you've been an investor for a while here. And that's a uh, it's an interesting use case that's often pointed to as a um, as like a new financial enabling system to allow something that wouldn't happen otherwise to to occur that has real world uh, uh, offline benefits. So maybe can you just can you just describe what Helium is and how you got involved in it and uh, what you see as the utility here? Yeah, um, Helium is a new business model for deploying and managing wireless networks. Um, it also at the same time, uh, conveniently provides a way to reduce about 99% of the physical costs of building and deploying a wireless network. And also very cool intellectually, represents a novel form of capital formation. Only because I'm not familiar with it, how does it actually work? Like who signs up? What do they pay? What do they get? How do they make money? What's the... I've read about the basics, but I honestly, I don't actually know the details. Yeah. So the basic premise of Helium is um, you want to build a wireless network um, instead of like looking at a map of the city, figuring out who owns the land and the places you want to put the towers, calling the landowners, going and building towers, running much backhaul, you know, doing that whole, that whole shindig. What if you can just go to people who have houses or own small businesses? And what if they can just buy a hotspot, yay big, put it in the window, uh, and then that thing has an antenna on the back, it creates radio coverage. And then any device walking around nearby can access those radio, radio waves and pay per byte of data. Like that, that is the core thing. V1 of the Helium network, uh, which has about a million hotspots, maybe 900,000 hotspots, um, is focused not on cellular that your phone will use, but focused on IoT radio waves. Uh, um, so these are very long distance, very low data rates. 
Um, and then they are in the process of rolling out Helium V2, uh, which will support 5G cellular. Um, and that, that network will be something your phone will roam onto um, when Verizon and AT&T and T-Mobile are enabled to provide sufficient coverage. And so today, the, the just shy of a million hotspots, like where... Where where does that exist? What are the types of things you mentioned IoT? But like, can you give some examples of where in the country this is, how it's being enabled? Who's yeah? Who are the people that are putting up these hotspots? Yeah. So the great thing is the answer is like a bunch of random people, which which is the op- optimal answer to the question. Um, it started off with crypto nerds and IoT nerds, um, as you probably would expect. Um, and as the the marketing and the brand profile and PR and such has grown. It's just become profit-seeking individuals. Um, uh, when you the Helium Network first launched in uh, August of 2019, a hotspot cost $500. Uh, I believe today the lowest end hotspots are like 50 bucks or maybe 100 bucks, some, somewhere in that range. So at this point, fairly cheap. Um, and you put it in your window, and then it starts printing tokens at some rate. The, the rate is a function of how well you're positioned relative to other hotspots, and then how many total hotspots are there. Um, the rate of total HNT emissions per unit of time is fixed. So let's just say it's 100 tokens per day or whatever, 1,000 tokens per day. Uh, and then there's some algorithm that determines how those get split up among among the various hotspots. Um, but you plug in the thing, it starts printing tokens. And so so just to say this back to you, so the hotspots originally were about 500 bucks. Now they're down to 150 uh, or, or sorry, now they're down to 50 or 100-ish. And I uh, will put that, I'm, I'm sitting in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and I'll put that in my window. And what what is connecting to it? And then how am I getting access to this? You said there's a finite number of tokens that get issued on a given day. And so that's being split up among me and, and whoever else is enabling the system based on usage. Is that right? So uh, the, the Helium Hotspot itself has an Ethernet port. You just plug it into your Ethernet port in your house. I mean, that, and an electricity port. And then there's a Bluetooth app. There's an f- f- app in the app store. You set it up on using your phone. It takes like five minutes. Um, and then you just let it sit there and you're done. And you don't have to think anymore. Um, in terms of, of, of the token mechanics, and I touched on this in my first statement when I said it's a novel form of capital formation. Yeah. So what, what's so interesting about Heli- a wireless network in particular is a wireless network that has, let's say, five total hotspots or even 100 total hotspots actually has a value of zero. It's not a value of 0.001. The value is actually zero because no one on the demand side would bother to even sign up and deal with a network that has such a small amount of coverage. So you have some minimum threshold of coverage. I'm just going to say it's 500,000 hotspots. Whatever. There's some number, right? At which the value goes from not zero to something greater than zero. Um, and, and so this represents very interesting risk-reward mechanics for hotspot adopters. The first 100 people to buy hotspots are taking on the most financial risk because at that moment in time, there's the least probability that you will actually achieve critical threshold of 500,000 hotspots. If there are 499,000 hotspots, like the risk you're going to hit 500,000 is very low. And so those people are obviously taking less financial risk, right, in, in buying and, and putting up those hotspots. Because the network, because the probability of this actually being a network that someone will sign up for is much higher, right? I'm not the first person to be, do it. I'm the I'm close to being the one that fulfills the network's utility. Correct, exactly. So um, this is the beauty of, of risk and reward in the system. And the way the system specifically um, does this is you issue a fixed amount of HNT per unit of time. So I don't know, let's just say it's a thousand tokens per day, whatever the number is, doesn't really matter, uh, are going out. The first hundred people, like if you, if you go to the first hotspot on the first day, you're getting all thousand tokens. And then if there's two hotspots on the second day, each token's going to be 500. Obviously, you can do some math here and, and so on and so forth, right? Um, but the beauty of this is that if you believe in the network and if you take the most financial risk, 
you receive the most upside. Um, and to do this in a completely distributed way and in which there's very little, if any, human influence, and the whole thing is determined by an algorithm that's that's in public and open source and available for anyone to observe and critique, like that has never been done before. Um, and to do this to actually incentivize the production of a network that provides real economic value and real utility in the physical world is like a, a first order breakthrough in capital formation. Like, and that's why we're so excited about this thing. And if I have to, if I want to use the network as a demand side, I have to obviously buy the token as like my currency, if you will, like in order to use the network based on whatever bandwidth I need, that bandwidth is represented by some amount of token, basically. Uh, mechanically, that is correct, but it is abstracted where you can do this with a credit card. Right, 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 right. So effectively, like I swipe a credit card, I'm essentially buying some... You're buying data credits is, is the technical term, and then each data credit represents one kilobyte or whatever the, whatever the data unit is, at which point you as a customer can spend that on any hotspot anywhere in the world. I can spend it on any hotspot. And then the underlying token holder makes money via the... This is the part I wasn't sure. Do do I make money because the value of my token goes up or do I make money because I get cash for my token as like a piece of the revenue? Uh, mechanically, the way the system works is people who are converting dollars um, to, to use the network, so let's say you swipe a credit card, those people are providing buy pressure on the token. So then the system is emitting tokens to the hotspot owners. So you are now getting the dollars, right, from those people via flowing through the, the market itself, through, through the market. So wait, so I, if it's not a direct mechanism, but, but it is, it is still flowing through. Well, I'm just trying to think. So like if I spent 500 bucks on a, whatever, on a hospital, now it's 50 bucks, which is great. Uh, at some point I want to get money back for that. Obviously it's because it's an investment. You need to, you need to sell the HNT. You have to sell the HNT. Okay. So it's not a rev share. It's actually, uh, I want to sell, the, do I sell the HNT like in real time based on demand or do I like, how does that actually? You, you can do it on whatever frequency you want. You can set up a bot that does it every 24 hours or, you know, you could do it every month. Like you can, that that's your, totally your choice. Um, but it, it, the, the term rev share is confusing here. Um, the, the rev share is actually 100% to be clear. It's just that like mechanically, it's not the guy pays you. The mechanically is the guy's buying the tokens um, and burning those tokens. And then you are emitting, like being minting new tokens. But like that, those rates will offset in a way such that you can get dollars out and the same rate that they're coming in. Right. So it comes down to basically like how much demand is there for the underlying bandwidth versus the number of, how many participants did you say there were now? Uh, there are about 900,000 hotspots. It's unclear how many humans that represents or how many businesses. There are a, a number of businesses that have, you know, are known to have deployed thousands of hotspots. Um, but, you know, a, a upper bound of 900,000 humans. It's 900,000 humans times... What did we say? That's probably on average like 200 bucks ish per thing. Something like that. So 9 million. Yeah. What is that like? A, $18 million? Hundred and almost, I think it's 180 million now. Yeah. 200 million. Yeah. It's at 200 million. So you have 200 million coming in. Plus the company has to, the company's got to make money too, right? How does the company make money? Uh, he, he, Nova Labs is no longer producing hotspots. There's obviously some margin for the companies that are producing hotspots, but like Nova Labs doesn't really care about hotspot margins. Nova Labs' incentive is for hotspots to be as cheap as possible. I'm sorry, just to be clear, Nova Labs is the parent company behind Helium, right? Parent, parent is definitely the wrong term. Nova Labs is the company that founded the Helium network 
and they continue they are building the 5g stuff and other things around it and they are interfacing with telecoms and interfacing with companies like lime and salesforce and other people who use the network um but they are the helium network is a network it is not owned by anybody it is collectively owned and operated by nine hundred thousand hotspot owners got it okay helpful yep but they have to make that because you said they don't make their money on the hardware so they make it on where uh no nova labs obviously has a big pile of hnt so nova labs is more or less is just that they are have ideas of how to add some SaaS revenue lines on around that around the network, um, and to be a major you know uh, service provider for the network for people who want to do stuff around it. But today, the primary reason to own equity in Nova Labs is to be long HNT. To just hold the coin, and then you can. So the the primary mechanism is the coin. Got it. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean it's just like an interesting math problem, right? Because like obviously you don't need crypto to make the underlying infrastructure. Like you could do it without it, obviously, right? You could just except credit cards and Th that is actually false. So Verizon and AT&T have attempted and failed to produce a usable IoT network for over a decade. The same is true in, in uh, Europe and Asia and elsewhere. And the reason a handful of reasons, um, but the most important, of which is just the actual cost of deploying the network is too expensive. The beautiful thing about helium is not only does it represent a cool form of capital formation, it also physically takes out cost out of the system. Verizon and AT&T, I mean, they, whatever, they rent from American Tower, but American Tower has to have these costs with so all these costs are being passed on. You are paying guys to you know, own vans and drive around and they have hard hats, they have to climb towers and they have to run a bunch of backhaul. They have to do all that shit. They have to pay rent, right? All that stuff. In Helium, all of those costs actually collapse to zero. The only actual physical source of cost in the system is the cost of the hardware itself. But there's actually no other hard cost at all. Yeah, no, so we've spent, well, people, I guess, the community or whatever has spent, which we just did the math, Something like two hundred million dollars or so on the hardware. Um, spending out. So, like, the, Verizon could spend two hundred million dollars subsidizing hardware, right? They could say, "I'm going to send you this device, and that every time somebody uses it, I'm going to rev share the the meter or whatever with you." And like, two hundred million dollars for a Verizon is what? Like, good luck. It's a two hundred billion. Two hundred billion dollar public company that spends like a few billion in capex every year. So, I don't think it's that. You can't do it in the old way. Like you definitely can do it, but 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 it actually will not happen. Verizon and AT and T and Vodafone will will never do this. Yeah, and I'm wondering if the reason why they won't do it is because they can't make money doing it. I mean, it's like maybe that's maybe that's the reason. Maybe it's not because like the technology doesn't exist because obviously the hardware exists and the idea of like tracking bandwidth usage exists, and they've got like an underlying customer base that clearly wants like IoT bandwidth. I would say Verizon probably has some of the largest customers in the area. Maybe the reason it doesn't exist is because it's just not a good business model. Uh, I mean, demand has been lacking in the IoT world historically as a function of the, there wasn't enough supply of, of, of contiguous good coverage. The other thing to keep in mind here is the Helium network is distributed across. The Helium network is by far the world's largest wireless network, like larger than anything in China, anything in the United States, anything in Russia, substantially in terms of population coverage um, and mileage coverage. So comparing for what Verizon can set for $200 million in the United States to what Helium has achieved globally is you know, pretty substantial apples and oranges difference. Um, the Helium network covers something like a couple billion people in terms of like sheer just zip code coverage um, and, and population. So it, it's, it's pretty substantial. And to do that for $200 million, like it's laughable for Verizon. Verizon's never going to even dream of doing that. Don't you want density though? Like, isn't the point of a wireless network ultimately about like having coverage in all areas and like, like the dish... I understand like breadth of it, but actually breadth is not exactly what you're looking for, right? You're looking for like density in a specific area. Cor correct. There are going to be some areas that are better, some areas that are worse. The same is true as AT&T and Verizon today. The beautiful part of this model, though, is that if there is demand to use the service in an area and there is, for whatever reason, no supply, 
the way the algorithm is tuned is it will start, if a supply shows up, that will start getting excess re rewards for some short period of time to compensate people to find the holes in the network and, and fix them. Again, the beautiful thing about this market is that this is a, the, the, because of the, how the algorithm works, you just have a hyper-localized market. And like AT&T and Verizon are like the least granular markets you can imagine. You have like four companies that compete over the whole country, which is kind of silly. Um, here, you actually can compete on a per square mile basis, basically. Yeah, I mean, I don't know enough about like the wireless infrastructure. I could tell you that those are very big for-profit companies with very large customer bases who want IoT bandwidth. I have to think at some point they sat down and said like, all right, let's look at like our biggest markets where we see IoT demand, you know, I don't know, major cities. Uh, like what's the cost of us deploying a piece of hardware to our existing customers that allows, you know, other people to hop on and I can pay for the hardware and rent the network. And we just did a little bit of the math. I bet you if it's a concentrated one, it's probably less than a hundred million dollars if you wanted to pick like a single geography. I don't know, pick New York, pick Boston, something like that to test it. I just have this hunch that the reason they're not doing it is because the demand, like the margin on it isn't big enough relative to the actual cost to deploy. But I guess we will find out to see like, does the demand for this ultimately win out? I think the critique of it is always like the market size, not the technology. I think the technology is very cool. Too, very cool. It is very cool technology, right? That you can like hand someone a piece of hardware, plug it in and have them like lo load themselves into this network where there is no central authority. It's like very cool. Uh, I think I worry about the size of it. I'd be curious how, I don't know, I guess how they would think about like, where does the demand come from and the size of that demand and the profitability of it? Yeah, so I mean, it's a classic case of, of supply and demand chicken and egg problem. Today, Verizon and AT&T, they don't really let you onboard a device onto their respective networks for less than $10 per year. Um, the goal of Helium Networks is to have devices pay $1 per year. So you're talking about 90% cost reduction. So yeah, it is not profitable for them because their cost structures do not enable them to offer $1 per year service. But like that is the goal. Right, but in order for the network to be sustainable, the people who are investing their time in the hardware obviously have to make their money back at some point, right? So Correct. We need, we need there to be hundreds of billions of, of smart devices, right? Like the idea is we should have a sensor on every X, X square miles. There should be Y number of sensors around weather and temperature and fire and traffics and garbage. I mean, what like pick your smart sensor of choice, right? But there should just be sensors for everything everywhere. Um, and if you actually do that math, like you get to many, many billions very quickly. Right, right. And this network has to be cheaper and just as accessible and just as fast and all that. So you slowly incrementally win, win the business over. Yeah, that makes sense. Correct. Hey, Kyle, what question, just to, just to back up to something you said earlier on the distinction between Nova Labs and the Helium Network. So Nova Labs, were they, they, they help start and they're facilitating different aspects around the Helium Network. And you invested, Multicoin's an investor in Nova Labs, is that right? Uh, we own a very small amount of equity in Nova Labs, but the vast majority of our exposure is via HNT tokens. Got it. Okay. When, when Nova Labs, re, it looks like they raised $250 million since whenever they got going uh, in equity for the company. What did that actually go to? Like, what are people investing in there? Um, so I'm not as privy to the more recent financing rounds that happened after the network launched uh, because we did not participate in those. Um, but we, we, were, we led the last financing round before the network launched Network launched August 1st, 2019. We invested in May of 2019. Um, and then the way we received our HT tokens is there is um, in the Helium network what's called the Founders Reward. So every block, let's say every block that goes by, the 100 tokens are minted. 
Um, I think 35 of those tokens go to the founder's reward. And so we bought some fraction of the founder's reward. Um, Nova Labs has some fraction of the founder's reward. Other investors have some fraction of the founder's reward, whatever. Um, and then the other 65% go to the network as a whole. That number percentage then decreases over time. So it started at 35% and has a terminal number of, I think, 5%, if I recall correctly. Um, and this is all pre-programmed in and all open source and in all the, the public Helium docs. Um, but, but the kind of idea here is um, we, are, we are literally minting new HNT tokens every minute. So just to understand, so, so when Tiger led uh, in January of, of this year, a $200 million round at a $1.3 billion valuation in this, that's, they're getting access to the, the monetary mechanism for Nova Labs itself is basically a, uh, I, I don't know if you, you'll probably dispute the term tax, but it's some uh, incentive on top of the existing ecosystem for having done the work to set this up and all the different mechanisms. And then that number goes down over time as the network scales. Uh, that is correct. By buying equity in Nova Labs, Tiger bought uh, some amount of HNT, I think they bought some HNT off of Nova Labs' balance sheet directly. Um, and they also bought equity in Nova Labs. Um, and Nova Labs um, has some plans on, on providing value-added services on top of the network. So things like taking your credit card and swiping it and having it all work magically, um, that the network cannot do that itself. So companies like Nova Labs will will do stuff like that. Yeah, you kind of get this like interesting... I mean, the financing mechanisms are compelling, if you will, as an investor, right? Because you basically have an opportunity, if you so choose, and I uh, am extremely impressed and kind of commend you guys for being long-term holders and the fact that you've never sold any of this stuff because that probably puts you at like the top 1% of conviction actually out there. Uh, but for a lot of the folks where traditionally in a startup, if you finance like a large equity round, your ability to actually get any money out of that financing, it requires like some future M&A event or IPO. It's like totally illiquid, basically. And you take on that long-term risk. Here, some of that long-term risk is like somewhat mitigated by the opportunity to have some of your holdings in these coins. And if you so choose, and obviously you guys aren't doing this, but like if you so choose, you can essentially sell some of your equity early. It's almost like being able to access private markets for a private company stock in a slightly different mechanism, right? Like you get some liquidity for your initial investment. At least as an investor, that's how I think about it. It's like a risk reduction mechanism. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, this 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 is a a a separate and very long sort of discussion about like the nature of of laws around capital formation and issuing securities and financial control. Um, what's it called, um, uh, whatever, financial protection and the implications on liquidity and financial markets and what that means for tech startups and innovation in the economy. Like there's a whole bunch of interrelated issues here. Uh, I, I have some fairly pointed opinions on all of them. Um, but yes, you are correct. Like this clearly reduces risk of early stage venture financing um, very in a very obvious and direct way. I know people think I like have like a super strong opinion about this, but like I, I'm I actually would admit that I'm like particularly conflicted because on one hand, you know, you can dress it up as ah, you've got sophisticated investors who are taking advantage of unsophisticated investors in like a speculative nature, and that's 
not right or what? I don't know. There's like some, obviously there's some objections there. On the other hand, there are these very odd rules that, you know, in terms of like accredited investor status and minimum income that you have to have to be able to participate in this ecosystem in the first place. And it's kind of like, is big brother government helping or hurting? Uh, and I think that's a very reasonable debate, right? Like a normal person who owns, you know, one of these helium devices is unlikely to qualify in the United States to legally buy helium equity in a private financing round. But here they can participate by buying access to the token. And like, should we just allow adults to be adults and like invest in things that they want to invest in and lose money and make money in the way that we want them to? And like, this is just another way of letting them do that. Like, I think that's actually an interesting, compelling argument. And I, I could see both sides to it. Yeah. Uh, so, so a few comments there. One, um, what's particularly interesting about the Helium Network is not only is it like a, a you're raising money from the public, but more importantly, you are actually building physical infrastructure and the public is building the physical infrastructure. So, so it's not just financial capital that's being formed. It's also functional utility capital in the, in the physical world. Oh, it's like useful money. Totally agree. It's like being spent on actual stuff. Yeah. Right, 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 right. On actual stuff, which, which is super cool. Um, it happens to be tied to this also novel form of capital formation. Se second comment that the more kind of directly addresses what you're, you're saying is um, basically all of the major securities laws that matter were written either in the Great Depression or in the wake of the Great Depression. Um, and they were obviously because of the Great Depression, lots of people were trying to scam other people to get money to, to live and survive and stuff. Uh, obviously, there, are, there will always be scammers in the world. You can't really change that. But the by far the most important thing that has changed between the 30s and now is the internet um, and, and the access to information and the access to financial literacy. Um, and uh, I think that should actually reshape how we as a society think about what risks is, are acceptable for normal people to take. I would actually argue it's probably good for most 18 to 25 year olds to get scammed and lose the substantial majority of their life savings. <laughs> like I, I actually think society would be better off in the long run if that happened to most 18 to 25 year olds because they will teach them a lesson about risk and about trust and due diligence that like they are never going to forget. I, it's hard to disagree. I mean, it's a very libertarian take, obviously, of like people are adults and let them make their own decisions. Uh, yeah, there's a really nice life lesson of getting screwed over early in life and realizing like, maybe I should like triple check this before I put a bunch of money into it. I totally agree. Yeah, um, I, I think society as a whole would, would be, I think that would cause people to make much wiser decisions around all kinds of other facets of their life um, if they experience that uh, with an app where the absolute dollars are quite small. Yeah, one of the biggest critiques I think crypto investors and operators have of the US system that I actually do agree with is that we have a lot of these consumer protections, and I, I want to use it broadly, but very specifically like accredited investor and qualified purchaser standards, right? Which is basically like an income and asset requirement that you have to have to be able to invest in private company stock. You have to have made something, I don't remember it offhand, but I think it's like something like at, at a minimum $250,000 a year for a few years or have something like what, a million dollars in underlying assets, like non-house, whatever. It's like a reasonably big number. And if you don't have that income or assets, you basically can't participate in private equity financings of C-Corps. It's a little crazy. Correct. I would actually argue the problem is, is worse than that. It's not only the credit investor rules, as you're alluding to, it's also the fact that 
the assets are structurally illiquid for such a long period of time. Like one thing is, hey, your income is $400,000 a year. But like a lot of people who make $400,000 a year are unwilling to part with $50,000 if they have, if they believe there's no chance they'll get it back for a minimum of three years um, or longer. Um, and if you can actually reduce time to liquidity, you open access to financial markets but because it just is a function of risk tolerance and risk preference. Um, now that I realize that introduces its own new problems and I don't, I don't dispute that like that comes like insider information and other kinds of problems become a thing. But like, uh, again, I think society is probably better off in the long run if people can be adults and if people can go in and out of stuff as they, as they see fit. Telling people you cannot invest in things that you believe in like because they're just illiquid and inaccessible. Like if the, if the founders genuinely believe the product or service or the community or whatever is better off by enabling people to become economic owners in it, on some free market, like we, we, we as a society should generally optimize for that to be a thing. I don't think it's the liquidity piece of it. Like I, I think there's this, I think there's a lot of really sound arguments about why liquidity in private companies, especially growth stage private companies is actually a bad thing for the company because you have massive variability in the price. It moves up and down. People don't it's hard for the employee base. It's hard to re recruit. It's hard to retain. You're constantly resetting your stock options. It creates somewhat of like an operating nightmare for founders of these companies. Like there's a reason why they're staying public, sorry, private for a fairly long time by choice. Like if you ask any seasoned founder operator, they would tell you like, I will go public when I believe my stock price will remain reasonably stable over time because my employee happiness trends almost exclusively to the stock price. I've talked to like enough public market founders where you ask like, how does your employee feedback look? And they go, well, what does the stock price look like? Because it literally attaches itself to the stock price. And there's some real downsides. I got in this stupid shouting match with Sam Blessin about liquidity. And he's like, you know, very religious. It's a feature. It's a feature. It's always better. I'm like, that is just like not true if you're a founder operator and it will hamstring quite a few companies from growing. So I, I don't buy the like, liquidity is necessarily a good thing for the company. I agree that the protectionist rules that we have in place that stem from, you know, some really bad actors where information was not nearly as readily available probably are outdated and should be revised. And, you know, we should allow people who to take a little bit more risk on their own dollars and get access to, you know, interesting startups. And this is one kind of somewhat clever way of doing it for kind of a niche, a niche use case. Uh, the liquidity one, I think, is a whole separate separate challenge. But they, they tend to get related. I don't think the liquidity argument holds in my book. I do agree the, the, the big brother nature of this or like the protectionist nature of like the government is here to protect you from making really bad mistakes. That one, that doesn't always sit right with me. I think people should be allowed to make dumb mistakes on their own. Yeah, I mean, what, what, one thing by enabling the public at large to become economic, you know, shared economic interest and in your outcome, that that is a very powerful thing to unlock. We are watching this happen live, right? By the way, to be really clear, like we are watching the lack of rules have two very different outcomes, right? We have the helium outcome where you've got this like infrastructure build out because consumers are taking on risk now much smaller dollar risk $50 $200 $500 risk they're buying hardware they're plugging it in they're effectively investing they're just doing it in this like slightly different way at 
fairly small dollar amounts and you get to see this like infrastructure build out because there are no rules, right? They're allowed to do it. And that's like one end of the spectrum. And then you do have the other end of the spectrum, which are like the scams and the Ponzi schemes and the blowups. And like both are happening at the same time. We're like watching the lack of regulation play out. And it's kind of fascinating to see what happens there because this is this is the lawless version of finance that we had a while ago. And there's probably some balance between these two that is where it should end up. It should not be like completely open for anybody to start a crypto project and raise money and allow consumers to buy it at the same time. Yeah, $250,000 a year in income for a few years is probably a little too high of a minimum for like the average American. I think that's a little crazy. Yeah, and then there's also the question of, well, what about non-Americans, right? Like, can you enable random guys and pick your country of choice to get excited and participate um, and to do so at much dollars, much smaller dollar scales? Well, this is good stuff. I, I, I know we only have, we only blocked this amount of time. Kyle, thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this and going through all of this stuff. It's, uh, yeah, a lot of interesting stuff going on and we appreciate you sort of answering our, our, our questions throughout here. Wait, can I ask, I have to ask the, my, cause we, we done the Bitcoin stuff. And so I always want to get I always like to ask the Bitcoin people their impression of like the more crypto oriented business models and then the crypto people, the Bitcoin question, where, where, where do you, where do you net out? You kind of alluded to it earlier, uh, the whole like Austrian economic thing, but I'm curious your stance. I think Bitcoin is absolute nonsense. I knew we would get a strong opinion. That's what I was hoping for. I, I, Can you elaborate? Just, we need this, we need, we need some hot clip right now for the Bitcoin maxis out there. I mean, I literally, this clip went viral like a week ago from Harry Stebbings' podcast in which I said, quote, Bitcoin is nonsense. So um, uh, I'm just rehashing what I said like a week or two ago. That's fine. Yeah, we, we just, we need our own virality. We can play the game. Our, our overlap of his thousands of users is like two guys in their basement listening to this. Yeah, exactly. You got only 15 people listen to this. So, yeah. Right. So um, the, the quick of it is that, Bitcoin is supposed to be an inflation hedge. Um, Bitcoin is explicitly a non-productive asset. Um, if you are genuinely trying to hedge inflation, you can. there's a whole array of assets you can buy that are productive assets that even if their PE ratios go to 1,000 or even to a million, they still have a yield greater than zero. <laughs> um, and Bitcoin's yield will always be negative, at least until the year 2140, because like there's still Bitcoin being printed. Um, and Bitcoin has no pretend semblance of ever having a positive yield because it doesn't do that. Um, I would, con my, my therefore contentions is there, there is no point in having non-productive assets. Um, commodities obviously have some sort of functional utility value or whatever. It's fine. But like, th there is no bar that like I, I have, I have derived that you actually justify holding a non-productive asset when like, if you want to avoid inflation, the right assets to buy are like Amazon or like Walmart or like tips or whatever. There's no, there's 500 things you can choose from. Something with an income stream, basically. Something with an income stream and yeah, something that is like yeah. clearly inflation resistant and you can just buy a basket of those things um, to hedge out any specific inducing credit risks. But arguing that like we need gold, but the rock in the ground, or in this case, the digital version of the rock in the ground um, is like clearly the incorrect answer um, when you can have something that's productive instead. Totally great. And the only like the only bull case I've heard, we had this combo with Pomp at one point, it's not even like a good bull case. It's just like a logical bull case. Good meaning like fundamentally agree with it. It's more of a time in, in history was, well, other people perceive it to be a good investment. And so like 
there's a time for when you should own it because other people perceive it uh, to be worth holding. And like, there's this, it's like a trading view of it basically, but I couldn't agree more. Like in a long-term hold, like it's totally unproductive asset. It has no income stream whatsoever. It never will. Now it begs the question, why do people own gold? And obviously gold has like this big history and, you know, I would also would, would not own gold myself, but uh, very, very, very aligned on that front. Logan holds it because he doesn't want to look like an idiot. So, well, I, I'm going to look like an idiot either way. I, I just want to have some hedge no matter what that I can say I'm right. Broken clock is right twice a day. Right. That's right. <laughs> uh, Kyle, thanks for doing this. Thanks for coming on. All right, guys. Take care. Good to talk. So that'll do it for the 29th episode of Cartoon Avatars. Thank you to Kyle for coming on. Uh, thanks to Zach, as usual. Thanks to Rashad for coming out from behind the scenes. Uh, next week, uh, we have another good guest coming on to talk about things not related to crypto uh, in entirety. Uh, a really high-profile founder um, and a conversation Zach and I had with, uh, with him. And so trust you'll enjoy that conversation next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Have a good weekend.